This episode of The Startup Life is tucked in nice and tight by Philip Stein and the Philip Stein Sleep Bracelet. Startup Nation, getting quality sleep is super important, especially for those of us as entrepreneurs. I know for me, if I don't get enough quality sleep, not only do I not perform well while working in my business or exercising, but also it really affects my mental health and that doubt starts to creep in. And that's the last thing we want as entrepreneurs. Also, with everything going on, good quality sleep is important to repair the body and support a good immune system. And that is why Startup Nation, I wear the Philip Stein Sleep Bracelet. The Philip Stein Sleep Bracelet uses natural frequency technology to reinforce our biomagnetic field to improve deep sleep, length of sleep, and overall sleep quality. This helps produce a healthier heart, regulate weight control, and helps strengthen the immune system, which helps destroy bacteria and viruses. Right now, when you go to philipstein.com, use code SLEEPEZ, and you will get 10% off the entire store. That's promo code SLEEP, capital E, capital Z. So if you are ready to be more productive in leading your business, go with the Philip Stein Sleep Bracelet, proven to be natural and safe to give you a better, deeper sleep. It's time to be about that life, the startup life. Here's your host, Dominic Lawson. All right, Startup Nation, so I hope you're ready to receive some value today. My name is Dominic Lawson, and this is The Startup Life, the show for entrepreneurs and career-minded professionals. You know, Startup Nation, as we engage with this kind of new normal, this new economy, uh, if you will, a lot of us are kind of working from home remotely and stuff like that. And so kind of staying on task and making sure we're still being efficient is probably still uh, pretty important, I imagine. So we have a great guest to kind of talk about that and more for you today on the show. He is an award-winning designer characterized by his refined aesthetic and ability to work at the highest level across mediums that has him uh, recognized as a leader in his field. He was the director of design at Square, responsible for overseeing everything from product design to video production. He is currently the CEO of Flow a modern task and project management software for teams that brings together your task projects, timelines, and conversation to help you achieve more. He is my guy, Daniel Scrivener. D. Scriv, what's up, man? Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to be here. No worries, man. And then we ask this of all of our guests. Are you ready to pour some knowledge into Startup Nation, my guy? Absolutely. Absolutely. All let's do it. So you know what? Let's do this, man. Let's just start with your origin story and your background a little bit. Yeah. So my or my origin story is a little a little unconventional. So okay. I uh, we like unconventional uh, origin stories. Yeah. So so <laughs> I was lucky enough to kind of find one of the things that I love, and really the the things that I focus most of my time on today are either uh, design, investing, and or business, and usually okay. it's some sort of intersection between those, and and. Uh, when I was, you know, really young, I stumbled into design, really, frankly, you know, I didn't, I think when a lot of people think of the word design, they probably, you know, kind of relate it to, to, to art or being good at art or being good at kind of artistic things. Right. And that really was not my background at all. In in school, I, I was terrible at art class. I didn't enjoy it. It was definitely one of my least favorite classes. So the way that I, I kind of discovered design, and I'll talk about how I think about that in, in a second, but the the way that I discovered it was through a, a class. So I was in high school. I was, you know, super young kid. I've always been really motivated. I was in high school getting, uh, taking a class over the summer to help me graduate early because gotcha. I've been working and had a, uh, basically a full-time job since I was 15 and a half. Okay. Um, and so I took a class of, uh, an HTML class, basically learning how to kind of put together websites. And at that point in time, this was, 
I don't even know, 15 plus years ago. So it was extremely simple. You know, today, if you want to put together a website, it can be very complex. You've got, you know, JavaScript libraries, you've got CSS, you have totally different frameworks you can create a site in. But back then it was really simple. It was just, if you want to make a site, you worked in HTML. And so I, I went to the summer class kind of, you know, and uh, it di- didn't really go in with any expectations. But what I fell in love with really quickly is I suddenly had this tool set where I could have an idea or have something I wanted to communicate or have something I wanted to create. And in a couple of hours or a couple of days, I could have a site that I could say, hey, go to this link and, and check this out. And that to me was there was something really addicting about that. I could have an idea. I could create it and I could share it. But then the thing that that uh, I stumbled into is everything that I made just looked terrible. Mm, <laughs> so gotcha. the, that was the that was how I stumbled into design was figuring out this kind of intersection between uh, solving really hard problems and trying to find a way to ultimately uh, have that come across as something you can emotionally connect with, something that stands out, something that's striking. And so for me, whenever I work with clients um, on the design side, it's some mixture of what's the hard problem we're solving here and what's the way that we're going to be able to take that up so it can really be something that stands out. I want to ask a quick follow-up because you said something about creating something that emotionally connects with like the target audience and stuff like that. You know, when we think about business, a lot of times, sometimes there's, there's disconnects, there's misconnects, right? You know, so how does one, you know, who's, kind of going into designing uh, like uh, 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 advertising uh, thing for their client base to kind of have that emotional connection there? What's your process look like? Yeah, it's a a great question. And it's not, um, I don't have a super crisp answer, you know, because I I feel like for the the creative process for, uh, I think for a lot of people, they kind of think like, oh, you you just, you stumble across this. I do step one, step two, step three. It's not quite like that, but I would say there's a, there's a couple rules I try to, I try to follow. And the the rules for me are, I think number one, in order for it to emotionally connect, you have to make sure you know what your audience cares about. And oftentimes, you know, as even as an entrepreneur, what you think is cool about your product may not connect at all with the customers. And so you really need, so maybe an example of that would be, um, let me try to try to think of one, I guess, related to, to, to flow here. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, we could, um, yeah, just thinking about it for flow, I think like one thing that we could highlight is some of the features that we have mm-hmm. that are cool, but that some of our competitors have, but I think what you really need to try to find, find out is, and, and this is almost a great way is you take the problem and you invert it. And instead of focusing on what you're, what you think your customers are going to respond positively to really get to understand what do they hate? What do they hate about your competitors? What do they hate about the status quo? And what is, what is your problem? What is your product do particularly well that'll help solve that problem? And, and, you know, I think that can come across sounding a little bit negative, but I'll give you a really simple example of that. So, you know, we're in a crowded task management space and we're creating software that at the end of the day, um, you know, there's a lot of competitors and we all generally do something similar, meaning we have tasks in the in the app. You can create tasks for yourself. You can delegate tasks to your team members. You can pull together a bunch of tasks around a larger goal, which is typically referred to as a project. And, you know, so everyone's going to have that functionality, but all of our competitors and, and, you know, and us, we approach that problem very differently. And so one thing that we found that the, when we talk to our customers and we hear from people that every single time we say, how do you like flow? They give us a 10 out of 10. The answer is always the same, which is that they feel like every other app is bloated. 
it's really complicated and it's ugly. And kind of their point of view is if this is something I'm going to be spending time in every single day, I want it to look great. And so what we've identified is, you know, that, that like burning point that, uh, where we can emotionally connect with our customers is just making it really clear that if you're tired of crappy, poorly designed, slow, bloated, complicated tools, come, you know, come and use flow. We have something that's blazing fast. We have something that's simple enough that anyone on your team can pick it up in minutes. And we have something that's incredibly well crafted so that when you use it, you actually enjoy it as opposed to this being this kind of chore that you have to get done. In that same vein, because, you know, I imagine that a lot of a lot of people are, you know, like I said, we talked about at the top of the show are working from home, working remotely, working in different type of uh, circumstances and stuff like that. How come flow kind of, you know, works in this new uh, environment that we find ourselves in this new economy in the newer workplace. Yeah. Well, I think that, I mean, so just a, a couple notes on that. Sure. Number one, we've been a fully remote company for a very long time. Course, you know, we've been around for 10 years for the last three years, we've been a fully remote team. And so I'm based in the U S a handful of the team members are based in Canada. We have someone that's based in Florida. We have someone in the Philippines and our team also obviously pre COVID was a little bit different, but our right. team would also travel. And so we have team members that were all around the world. And so we've been working in this new normal for quite a while. And so I think, number one, that's definitely influenced how we approach the tool. And one thing that is very different about Flow uh, from our competitors is in the newest version. So for the last year and a half, we've been working on a brand new version of the product that we call Flow X. Mm-hmm. The X is a nod to the fact that we're celebrating our 10th anniversary this year. Nice. And it's been a, a great chance to be able to just take a big step back and think about how we can create, you know, we've had now had 10 years of iterating and refining this product. How can we take everything we've learned and implement that? But also how can we look forward a little bit and think about, just think about the problem a little bit differently and make sure that we're not showing up with a me too solution. Because I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, that's a problem that they, that they struggle with if they have a lot of competitors. And so for us, one of the things that we've uh, identified really early and that's resonated with a lot of our customers, and that definitely is helpful in this new normal, is that we have chat. uh, So you can create channels for group discussions and company-wide discussions. Uh, You can create private channels for uh, a handful of just people on your team to be able to communicate. And you can do direct messaging with individuals and with groups, uh, all in the app. So it's like having Slack uh, bolted into a productivity app. And for a lot of people, you know, we've gotten some interesting questions about that. I think for a lot of people, they're like, well, you just trying to, you know, maybe copy Slack or are you trying to compete with Slack? And the answer is is really different than that, which is, you know, when we look at our customer base, a lot of our customers are entrepreneurs and they have, you know, they they have, I would say, somewhere in the small to medium-sized team. So for some people, it's literally three people, three people working, you know, super scrappily on a, on a big problem, all the way up to say 50, 100, 200, 300. And for us, our sweet spot's probably somewhere between 50 and say 300 today. And for a lot of those team members, um, they don't use Slack because a lot of entrepreneurs see it as a distraction and they don't understand why, you know, or they say, well, we we can kind of keep in sync normally, or that's what emails for, or that's what meetings are for. And there's a lot of answers around that. But the biggest thing that we found is uh, one, entrepreneurs don't use Slack. And two, one of the reasons is they feel like it's a frivolous expense. Like they're going to invest in this tool and it's just for team members to maybe kind of waste time in or at the very least or maybe looking at it in the in the best light 
it's not likely to help drive work forward. So it's maybe great for like solving problems really quickly, but it's not great for longer form discussions. And it's really hard if you use Slack to like have a great conversation and then figure out how you transition that into tasks. And so what we've done in Flow is added chat to Flow so that any any business of any side of any size can have a team communication tool inside of Flow that they can use. But the other thing is it, it what what is amazing about it being bolted on to a productivity app is it's incredibly easy. It's easier than with any other tool to make sure that a conversation turns into actionable tasks and next steps. And Startup Nation, Flow works with you know, uh, many uh, uh, well-known companies that you know and love like Merck, Apple, Red Bull, Shopify, and a few others. I want to ask you this, Daniel, because you know, how yeah. do you convince those uh those partners to go with you over like your competitors that you just kind of mentioned like what's what, what's that differentiating factor because i know a lot of times startup nation there are many of them uh who are in the b2b space and they're looking for that type of like uh, that marketing with b2b that marketing or that how that conversation looks when you're trying to sell your product to another business what does that look like yes. for you no that's a great question so I, the, the biggest thing that I've learned is you never, ever, ever want to go head to head. So we never want to compete with any of our larger competitors. And gotcha. just for context, because it might be helpful. You know, we're a bootstrap company. Right. We are profitable today. We have to invest and we have to invest in the business, pay for expenses, all of that stuff out of our cash flow every single month. So point blank, we're playing a very different game than our competition. A lot of our the bigger competitors we compete with, some of them have raised tens of millions, even a hundred plus million dollars in venture capital. So we're not going to win if we try to say, if we try to go to those customers and make the same enterprise sales pitch. And so what we really focus on, and we've spent a lot of time on this over the last 18 months is just really deeply reflecting on what are we, what are we uniquely capable of producing that's better than our competition? And I think that that's an amazing question because no matter how different your setup is, if your team is, you know, 10 times smaller than one of your competitors, it is you, if you think about it long enough, there are things that you can uniquely do better and differently than your competition, regardless of your size, regardless of how much capital you have, regardless of whether you're bootstrapped or you have venture capital. And so I think that's been a really freeing idea. And really what we've identified there is it goes back to that note I made earlier. I mean, the biggest uh, axis, because I think that's how you think about competition is you've got a lot of different axes you can compete on. You can compete right. on price, you can compete on feature set, you can compete on user experience, you can compete on brand, you can compete on differentiation. And, you know, I think the goal for entrepreneurs is to, you know, find those that you're going to kill the competition at right. and, and focus on those. And so for us, one of the biggest ones, and it goes back to our root, our roots is uh, design, because the reason a lot of those companies chose Flow is that same thing I highlighted earlier, where literally the majority of our customers have used all of our competitors. And in the, and that's something that's fascinating about our space is what we find is when someone signs up for a trial, they've likely are are using and trying Asana and Todoist and Basecamp and some of our competitors when they're trying Flow, or they've tried those things previously and found out what they don't or what they like or don't like about them. And the reason time and time again that people choose Flow, and this is I want everybody to listen because this is us competing against a much larger, you know, scary competitors, but doing it really well. The reason people have chosen us is because we work harder to create a product that's simpler and nicer and better and faster and more fluid. And so when people compare us to our competition, even though they have more money, bigger engineering team, 
the product feels worse. The product feels unfocused because you're dealing with decisions by committee and the product feels poorly designed because I think, you know, and I found this, it takes a lot to be able to have a special design culture where you can produce really amazing work time and time again at big companies. Because what typically happens is past a certain size, it gets kind of, you know, decision by consensus. And that just completely breaks down. You're never going to have something that breaks through the mold and, and comes across as striking when there's too many voices in the room. Gotcha. So that's been really helpful for us. Well, let me ask you this, a quick follow-up, you know, as, as, you know, uh, flow, <clears throat> excuse me, as flow, you know, continues to grow and, and stuff like that. Uh, and, and it gets, you know, uh, bigger than it is now. How do you keep that bootstrapping nature? Like how do you expand and scale, but also at the same time, find that balance to, to kind of keep that bootstrapping nature, to keep that, uh, that, uh, that way in that culture of not feeling, uh, bloated and stuff like that. Yeah. It's such a, it's a great question. So for a little bit of context, you know, previous to flow, you mentioned at the beginning of the show, but I've been a part of, you know, early stage venture capital backed companies that I joined when they were small. So square, I joined when it was around 50 and I left when it was over 1500 and we had already in five and a half years IPO and, and done that successfully. And, so, you know, even just looking at what it's like to be at one of those companies, I think the disease that I've had a lot of time to reflect on this, but the disease I typically see at those venture backed hyper growth scale companies where literally I think the problem at the end of the day just stems from they the one thing they have, uh, you know, a massive amount of that they look to solve all their problems with is cash. Like when you've mm. raised venture capital and you're sitting on millions and millions of dollars, it becomes really appealing. Just any problem you have, well, we've got money, let's throw money at that. And so the problem that happens at those companies is they just bloat way too quickly. And what I mean by that is they don't hire when they feel the pain. And you know, entrepreneurs know this, like you typically can't afford to hire someone as soon as you feel the pain on the issue. You have to feel the pain for a long point of time and really know that it's a long-term need and you're going to need this role tomorrow and you're going to need it six months from now and a year from now until you're willing until you're, you know, you're willing to kind of get over that hurdle and hire someone and start paying them. But if you're a venture capital-backed company, you don't have to do that. And so what, becomes, what happens really quickly is anytime you feel the slight bit of pain, another full-time hire. Doesn't matter if that full-time hire makes sense 12 months from now. Doesn't matter if you would do better by hiring a contractor. They just want to have a a person that they control, that they can bring in on the team. And so what what really quickly happens is, you know, you don't have time to build a cohesive culture and it's really hard to have these kind of shared values. And so what we focused on, and I think the way that we're going to try to solve that problem is I just refer to it as talent density. So one thing that I always aspire, if it's a company I'm looking at, and I'm thinking about investing in, this is what I, this is something I want to see them possess. All the best companies that I know and love that are uh, public companies and or they're companies that are profitable and they're at scale, they all have, they all focus on talent density, which is really just this idea that you want to have as small a team as humanly possible. And you want to make sure everyone on your team hits what they do out of the park. And so, you know, another way that I've heard people refer to that model is like a Navy SEALs model. And that may be off-putting for some people, but I think it's really just this idea of you want to have the smallest team. You want to bias for if I'm, you know, if I can maybe I have enough cash, I can hire two people, or I can just hire one person but pay them twice as much. I'm going to do that every single time because you just want to have an all-star team. And I think when you do that, and and you don't give in to solving problems with another full-time hire. One, it, it forces hard constraints on your team. And I think that produces a lot of creativity. And 
I think really that's what keeps that scrappy culture is you need to keep hard constraints in place so that people have to butt up against them. Because I think only, you know, as, as humans, we all want to, we, we don't want to stress. We don't want to struggle. We don't want to feel pain. We don't want to feel uncomfortable. And, but that is, that is a fact of life if you want to progress and if you want right. to find great answers to problems. But what that means is you're going to have to feel that pain for a little bit. You're going to have to sit in that pain. You're going to have to reflect on it and, and learn from your mistakes and really learn what, what's going to solve this problem or not. And so, yeah, I think it's just this idea of talent density and making sure that you have hard constraints on resources, on team size, and, and hard constraints too at the executive level of right. like, that also means that as a CEO, I can't ask for the moon. I have to, ha I have to sit with my hard constraints myself and say, okay, we can't do 10 things this quarter. What are the two or three things that we're going to do that are going to move the needle? And I think if you can do that at every level of the organization, you've got something really special. And I think you end up with something that I would say is probably in the top one or two percent of companies in terms of culture. I hear that. And I appreciate you sharing that because when you when you talk about that, you know, maybe we can't do the ten the ten things, maybe we just focus on uh two things that we can really knock out the part. I think a lot of us as entrepreneurs kinda, you know, we, we miss that 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 part of it. And I know I've I've fallen victim to that as myself because we feel like by scaling back from 10 things to two things, you're taking steps back. And, you know, that's yeah. one of the things as, as newly mentioned entrepreneurs, startup nation that we, we really kind of stress about. We want, we don't want to ever feel like we're taking steps back, even though really taking those steps back is kind of uh, a way forward. So I appreciate you sharing all of that, my man. No, and it is incredibly hard. And I think like I struggle with that myself and I have, you know, I would call it probably a weekly battle of how do I gotcha. rein in, how do I rein in, my ambitions and the things I would like to do it just, you know, and, and it's, it's something too. I think you just, you're not great at to begin with. Cause I think when you're an entrepreneur, you're super scrappy, you've got really big ideas, you work, you can work your butt off, but you, what you have to understand. And I think this has been something that's taken me an extremely long time to learn is if you want to be a successful entrepreneur, ultimately the name of the game is leverage. And mm. what, what I mean by leverage is you have to, you have to create a machine for lack of a better word, or maybe for, you know, a great analogy or a metaphor of what a business is, you have to create a machine that's bigger than you so that you aren't the bottleneck. And so that th this thing can scale. And what that inevitably means is you, you're not going to hire every single person on your team is not going to be like you. They're not going to work as hard as you. They're not going to be as, as driven as you. Um, they're going to all bring different skills to the table. And so really the way to, I think, look at it is um, just understanding that if you want to be successful, which for most entrepreneurs is I want to, you know, get to this sort of revenue size or this company size or this sort of profitability size, that's ultimately a scale problem. And you're never going to scale if you, uh, you know, unless you're comfortable really being hyper focused on what you're going after and what the priorities are, and then really empowering your team to be able to take that vision and run with it. Otherwise, you just fall into this trap of, you are constantly your own worst enemy. And it's really, really hard to get out of that. <laughs> for sure. Thank you. No, I appreciate all of that for sure. And once again, Startup Nation, we're talking to Daniel Scrivener, the CEO of Flow. And Startup Nation, as you scale and progress uh, with your company and your entrepreneurial journey, and you're looking for uh, some help to kind of help with those project management and task management skills to kind of move your company more efficiently forward, I want you to go to uh, www.getflow.com forward slash the startup life promo code 
Startup Life, all caps, uh, where you can get uh, 25% off when you subscribe, uh, either to an annual or monthly plan. Thanks to my good friend, uh, Daniel, here for kind of hooking us up with that. We appreciate that, man. No, thank you so much. And just to one other note on that, it's yeah. a totally risk-free 30-day trial. No one has to, we don't ask for any credit card information. So go to that URL. If you're, if you feel like this is something you're interested in, or you want to check out, sign up. It's no hassle. There's no risk. There's no issues. Try it free for 30 days. If you need more time, let us know. We'll extend your trial so that you have enough time to look at it. And then all, and then when you're ready and you you know that flows the right tool, that's when you'll go ahead and use that promo code and, and just apply that at checkout to save 25% off. I hear that. I appreciate that. And Startup Nation, if you listen to the replay on the podcast, that link is there in the show notes for easy access. I want to ask you one last question about flow before we kind of transition here. So I know sure. flow has been, a, you know, has been around for 10 years, but you've been there as CEO since 2019. And I know, uh, you know, in the early days of flow, it had a lot of successes, a lot of wins, but uh, as the market to, you know, continued to flood with competition and stuff like that, there were some headwinds, there was some adversity. So if you would talk about how coming into a uh, a situation or a culture where there was already some wins before you got there and now there's hidden adversity as the the uh, uh the incoming ceo what's the goal here like in the first 30 days first 60 days first 90 days like talk about that process of transitioning into that role into that company and no thank you so much for the question because i i uh, I'm, I'm super excited about this and i'm super passionate to share what i saw and why i was interested in coming for sure so yeah just for a little bit of context Flow's been around for 10 years. We're celebrating our 10th anniversary this year. Uh, the company had a tremendous amount of success early on, I would say probably in the last or in the first maybe six, seven years. Right. And really what happened is just like every industry, just like every kind of company, um, competition is always changing. And this is a space. What's what's happened over the last, I would say, five years is, you know, one venture capital and private equity have become bigger and bigger things. And I think they're going to continue to scale because uh, those are super huge opportunity sets. And so there's a lot of capital and they're looking for opportunities. And this is a space that's really appealing from a business perspective. You can create software that uh, is self-service. You can, you can get a large customer base and it's super sticky recurring revenue. So from the business side, it's super appealing. And if you're in this venture capital seat and you're a partner or you're at a private equity firm, it's absolutely something that you're looking at. And so we've seen a lot of capital come into the space. And so what's happened is, again, we are a bootstrap company. We've taken very little outside capital, only from you know very small checks from a few strategic investors. Um, and that's something that's really deeply ingrained in the culture. Uh, it's just this, you know, this uh, we want to create something great, but we want to do it in a way where at the end of the day, we're creating a business that's profitable, that we own, that we control, and we're not giving any of those control to any, any external parties. Gotcha. So what I saw and, you know, what was interesting to me about the opportunity to come to flow is, you know, tremendous amount of success to date, even just being a, just to say it point blank, being a bootstrapped company with very little outside capital it is incredible to be able to survive 10 years and have a multi-million dollar, you know, annual, uh, annual revenue kind of recurring revenue business. And right. so we already have something really special, but obviously things have changed a lot in the last three to five years. And so what I saw was, you know, there was a lot of promise. I thought I, we had a, a product that had what I saw as almost all the right features, but it just felt like things weren't being executed and pulled together in the right, in the right way. And what I mean by that is I think, to compete and win now, where we have really big, really scary, 
really well-capitalized competitors. We have to be on our game every single day, every week, every month, and we really need to know what we're doing and we need to execute really, really well. And so what I mean by that is like, I think we had a lot of things going for us, but I think we needed to be a little bit more hard-nosed and focused on, we can't just compete with an average product. We can't show up with a Me Too product. So it needs to, we need to kind of start by reinventing that product and make it something that's really special and then on top of that, we need to layer that with marketing and pricing and, you know, kind of customer acquisition that uh, will help us win and compete differently than our competition and compete in, in the, the places and in the ways that we can win. So I saw, and the, just the last note I would share there is yeah. I've had just personally, I've had, you know, I've had a, uh, some amazing experiences at early stage companies solving what I call the zero to one problem where you're, you have a really great idea. And now you need to come and figure out how do you just make this thing stick? How do you get those first initial customers? How do you turn this from an idea into an actual business that you can then scale? And, uh, you know, that's a really fun, fascinating problem. But, I've, but I, I feel like I've gotten a chance to do that. What I saw at Flow is something that I think is much, much more prevalent around the world, which is all throughout America, all throughout the world. There's businesses that have been around for 5, 10, 15, 25 years that need to be reinvented. Right. These businesses normally aren't. And so they shut their doors. And I think it's a shame because if you, you know, anyone that's an entrepreneur, it is fucking hard to, <laughs> to make that so. work, you know, just, just initially, let alone to survive for five years or 10 years or do something as absolutely incredible as survive for 25 years. And so I think it's a shame when obviously those businesses just, they, they don't realize they need to change the way they're competing. They don't execute on that well enough. They don't move fast enough. And so they just end up in this kind of, it often feels surprising to them, but from the outside looking in, you saw it coming from a mile away and they just didn't take those steps. And so mm. what I saw, what was super appealing is like, I want that experience. I want the experience of not just solving the zero to one problem, but going to a company that's struggling, that's had a lot of success, now needs a reinvention so that they can get to this next chapter where they're growing and the company can, can evolve. And uh, so I saw that at, at Flow. And so I joined with the idea that this would be a probably a five plus year project okay. that I would go in, spend the first 60, 90 days really getting to understand the team, getting to understand the product, just trying to, to be super honest, you know, uh, come in. I obviously had a lot of ideas and perspectives that I brought to the role, but I tried to approach it as if all that was up to be questioned and I could be wrong on each of those points, or maybe even all the ideas I had for how to fix it. Maybe they're all wrong. And so I tried to just spend the first 30, 60, 90 days. So yeah, that first quarter, really just trying to ground myself in what is the actual reality in the business. And then what we got to work with and kind of the plan that we've been executing on for the last 18 months now is um, we, I felt like we need to, we needed to go back and focus on the product first and foremost. And that if we were going to have a profitable growing business with the competitors I've described, we needed to have a world-class product because if we didn't, it was going to be way too easy for people to leave us and move to a, move to someone that maybe they didn't love, but was good enough for them. And so I knew that we needed to start there. And so literally we've worked on that for the last 18 months and we have right now FlowX, this next version product. We opened it up to 600 of our largest customers in March we opened it up about a month and a half ago to all of our customers. So now anyone who uh, is in a trial with us or, or has a subscription can access FlowX. And uh, we're getting ready to publicly launch it in a really big way um, at the beginning of September. 
And so we're really close to that. That was kind of stage one is let's focus on the product. And I'm super happy to dive deep there about what we did. Then the other thing was kind of let's focus on two other things. And those were really, I felt like this might be a weird analogy, but I felt like in our space uh, with all of our competitors, we really, really, really had to one, have a product that looked different, felt different and was different than our competition. But I don't think that's good enough because if, because most people aren't going to make it to the product. They're going to go to your homepage and decide on the messaging that's there or the imagery they see or the UI that you put on the homepage, whether they're even going to try your product. And if you don't win there, you're never going to get people in the product to be able to win them in the way you think you will. And so we, I knew we also needed to layer a great product with great marketing. And so then the other piece of that was, you know, we uh, have rebranded the company. We've kept the name, but we've we changed the logo, the identity. We redid our entire website. We changed the way that we sell the product and w- the way we try, what we try to promise customers when they land on our website. And then the last thing in my mind was, you know, we also needed to make sure that this business was going to be different uh, from all of this. And so, if we were going to expend right. all this energy and effort and invest all this time and money into the product and do the same thing on marketing, then I wanted to compete more as a premium player. And so, what that meant was you need to thread that needle. So we need to have pricing that's premium, but also make, you know, and I could talk about that because we did something that's pretty innovative and new in our space uh, with pricing versus how we price monthly versus annually. Um, but we moved to a premium pricing model. You know, we're backing that up with world-class branding and uh, we've worked with some of the best designers in the world. And so we've really tried to take a 360 degree approach. And I think just the last thing I would say is, it has been unbelievably hard <laughs> and it's something that uh, it's, it's been a never ending process. There's been a lot of, you know, kind of having to evolve, having to reflect on what's working and not working well. How do I make sure that I'm communicating uh, good enough to the team where we're headed and why we're doing this? How do I make sure people are bought in? How do we move quickly enough, but you don't burn out the team? There's just so many things. There's so many issues to try to, you know, stay on top of. Um, but that's what the last 18 months has looked like. All right, Startup Nation. So we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. We got to pay some bills. Once again, my name is Dominic Lawson and you're listening to The Startup Life. This episode of The Startup Life is brought to you by People Ready. Startup Nation, you have a lot on your plate. The last thing you need to stress about is finding quality staff or the available work you need to be successful. Save time and headache by working with a trusted staffing partner that meets your everyday needs. People Ready is a national staffing provider with over 600 locations across the country and 30 plus years of experience serving people just like you. They specialize in a variety of industries including retail, manufacturing, logistics, general cleaning, hospitality, construction, and more. People Ready understands that you're busy and on the go. That's where their mobile app, JobStack, comes in. 
Use the app to place orders or find work 24-7 or wherever you are. And as social distancing continues to change the way we interact with customers, colleagues, and our everyday lives, JobStack provides the ability to find the right temporary workers or work you need while eliminating the amount of physical touch points needed in the staffing process. Visit PeopleReady.com forward slash Startup Life to learn more about how you can partner with PeopleReady. By Colony Spark. Startup Nation, with our economy in flux, there is a lot of mixed messaging out there. If there was ever a time to take control of the narrative and let your customers know that you're here to serve them, it's now. And that's why you have a friend in Colony Spark. Colony Spark is an omni channel marketing agency that believes in the power of community to ignite your business. They have helped companies across many industries with lead generation, revenue growth, and more to put them on the path to success. My guy Bill Murphy and his team are very good at what they do. How do I know this? Because not many SEO companies have the stamp of approval of being partnered with Google. Yes, that Google. So I want you to go to www.colonyspark.com forward slash startup to schedule a meeting today. In that meeting, you will review your current marketing activity, receive actionable advice on how to pivot and grow, and ask any marketing questions you may have on navigating over the next few months. Look, Startup Nation, I know things may seem uncertain right now, but if you are looking for a business partner that can help light the way, go with Colony Spark, where they firmly believe in business helping business. This episode of The Startup Life is brought to you by the Risk Management Society. Startup Nation, the Risk Management Society, or RIMS, is a global organization dedicated to the profession of risk management. For nearly 60 years, RIMS has delivered the latest strategies and resources that allow risk professionals to grow, innovate, and succeed in any business. RIMS works with industry leaders to produce content and online training that business professionals turn to. Topics include business continuity, cyber risk, risk management techniques, the fundamentals of insurance, and more. There is also a private members-only site where people can discuss sensitive issues and get honest answers. Members have been leaning on each other as we all navigate this global pandemic. If you're concerned about the safety of your employees and the sustainability of your organization, you need the resources and connections RIMS provides. Learn more at go.rims.org forward slash startup life. If you listen to the replay on the podcast, we have a link there in the show notes. You can save 25% off a year long membership. So if you're ready to get the resources and strategies you need to manage risk, go with RIMS and join their global network of over 10,000 members across more than 60 countries. All right, Startup Nation, welcome back as we continue our conversation with today's guest here on The Startup Life. And, you know, I actually do want to kind of dive into that pricing part because a lot of entrepreneurs, that, that's a struggle. That's a constant it's struggle. Hard. What's, hard. Too, what's too much? What's not enough? What's that, that middle point? Kind of talk about that a little bit, that premium pricing you were talking about. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when I looked at when I came on and, and before I came on, uh, you know, accepted the role and, and, um, and joined the company, um, you know, I definitely did a lot of, com you know, just competitive analysis. So I right. went and looked at what, you know, who are our competitors and who and really, I think what I was trying to see is just I, I guess I think about competition in a few ways. When you look at competition, I think sometimes you, what you need to do is a benchmarking exercise. And so for us, we'll do we do benchmarking pretty often. So an example of that would be if we're working on, you know, so this is a real, you know, a real world uh, example. We've recently been working on bringing importing into the product. So if you're using Asana or Todoist or Basecamp, 
you can, you know, all of every company will let you export your tasks and your projects out. Um, but we haven't to date made it very easy for people to get those into flow. So we've been working on what does importing look like and how do we support that? And that's something where it's not going to move the needle. No one's going to sign up for flow because we have great importing. So I don't think we want to overinvest and we don't need to try to approach it as an innovation exercise, mm. but it needs, it's definitely something we need to have because if our goal is to grow, one of the biggest constraints we've had today to date is no one wants to move if they can't bring their data with them. Right. And so we we did a benchmarking exercise where we just looked at our all of our competitors and looked at what sorts of how importing worked on their platform. What could you import? What could you export? What did that process look like? Could you add? Could you import tasks to a project? Could you import them during setup? Could you just import them later on? And so that's an example where we'll just do a benchmarking exercise. And so I did that as a, you know in a pricing sense with all of our competition. But what I think that you then need to be really careful of is don't just don't get uh, don't use it as like an ambition exercise. Don't say, well, you know, I'm not really going to, you know, I, I know our product doesn't have this and doesn't have this, but I want this price that this competitor has. So mm. I think we should just move forward with it because this is the price that I want. And, you know, like, damn it, we're going to find a way to do it. I don't gotcha. think that's going to work. Right. And so the, the thing that the, what was tricky and what we spent time doing is, um, so before we revved our pricing, I would say that whether we wanted to admit it or not, we were definitely trying to compete on price. And what I meant by that is if a customer went to our website and went to Asana's and went to Basecamp and looked at their prices, they would immediately come to the conclusion, either flow isn't that great because it's super cheap or it's just, it's just really cheap and they're just trying to compete just on price alone. Right. And I don't, one, I think if you're going to do a bootstrap business and it's not going to be venture scale, I don't think you want to compete on price because you you're not going to be able to generate enough revenue to be able to support everything that you need to do. Right. So, you know, philosophically, I was I already knew that I felt like over time we should move to more of a premium pricing model. And, you know, what that means in my mind is uh, I think premium pricing premium businesses that can command premium prices are the best businesses in the world. Uh, because it means that you can't do that. You, you don't just wave a wand and you can start charging higher prices. It means that you've threaded that needle and you started with a great product, great marketing, great distribution, great branding. And ultimately, if you get all the, if you check all those boxes, then you can check the box of customers are willing to pay premium prices. And so we've been, you know, doing all of that work over the last 18 months. And so the, the move that we did that was, uh, at first, I was really skeptical of it, and uh, I'll give you the quick background story. Sure. But you know, in in our space, uh, we sell a subscription. So um, you know, at the end of the day, people are basically paying for the number of users that they have uh, at a certain price per month. But we allow people to be billed monthly, or we allow them to be billed annually. And obviously, there are trade offs there. And just to to talk to you know other entrepreneurs for a second, like uh, as an entrepreneur, if you can. Get, lock in 12 months of revenue from a customer, you're going to take that every single day versus just getting kind of one month of revenue at a time. And so the annual prices, we knew that we definitely wanted to bias for, to make it really appealing for someone to join us on an annual subscription. And then we knew that on monthly, we would rather have more premium pricing because of a bunch of things. We observed that people that were on annual plans churned at a much lower rate than people that were on monthly plans. Makes sense. You're generally less committed you're generally saying, I don't really know if I want to use this for all that long. So I'm just going to do the kind of quick, easy thing and just, just sign up for it on a monthly subscription. 
Um, but then we also just saw that people that were on an annual plan generally had higher usage of the product. Mm. They generally invited more team members. So we also saw that there was just tons of wins just looking at historical data if we could get customers on an annual subscription. Um, and so what we ended up doing, uh, we were working with a growth advisor at the time. We were talking about, you know, kind of pricing discussions. And she threw out an idea that at first I was like, this sounds crazy. Like, why doesn't any other business do this? And her suggestion was, you know, if you, well, let me just set up really quickly the way most of our competitors price and most software that does monthly and annual subscriptions price is they just say, here's our monthly price. If you pay, if you agree to stay with us for 12 months and pay us for annual subscription, you're just going to save 25% across the board. So they'll just pick a percentage and just say, it doesn't matter what plan you're on. You're just going to save 20% or 25%. And that percentage fluctuates from competitor to competitor, but that's generally the approach. And what we did instead is, um, and, and what her idea was, was why don't you have higher prices on the, uh, why don't you basically go for a premium model? on monthly prices so that you're saying, Hey, if you know that you are interested in flow, but you don't want to agree to an annual subscription, absolutely. We'd love to have you You're, but you're going to pay a higher price and it's going to be a significantly higher price than you're, than you pay if you were to move uh, annually, because then it provides a bigger incentive to move, to move to annual pricing. So we did that on the monthly prices and our monthly prices are um, anywhere from 25% more expensive than the annual prices all the way up to 44%. Uh, more expensive than our uh, annual plan prices. And then on the annual plan side, we did a tiered discount. So we've got three plans. We have basic plus and pro. And if you go annual on our basic plan, you'll save 25%. If you go annual on our plus plan, you'll pay, you'll save 33%. And if you go annual on our pro plan, you'll save 44%. And the idea there, and you know, time will tell, um, so far, it's been working really well, but time will tell if this, you know, we're able to kind of see what we've seen persist. But the thought there was it encourages, it has all the right things that encourages people to move to an annual subscription across the board because they're going to save significantly, but it also encourages them to go up as high as possible. And so for an example, you know, if you were looking at our basic plan on an annual plan subscription, it's $6 per user per month. And so generally what a lot of our competitors will do is, you know, the basic plan will be six. And then you look at the highest price plan, it might go to 16, 20, $24 a month. And what we did, which seems a little crazy, is we just tried to make it a screaming deal for you to go higher up our plans and go annual. And so, you know, compared to $6 for our basic plan, our, the plan that has everything that we offer, it's called the pro plan, right. is only $10 per user per month. So just for an extra $4 per user per month, you can get a ton of extra features and functionality. And so, yeah, premium pricing model on monthly, tiered discounts on annual really tried to make it as appealing as possible to go annual and go up to the highest plan possible. I appreciate that because like I said, you know, start many entrepreneurs and startup nation that, that pricing issue is, is so it, it's, it's like you said, it's hard. It's really hard. And so to have a kind of a model, not to say that startup nation, this pricing model is going to fit for you and your business, but at the very least is the idea of not only what that price and premium pricing model is for a uh, flow, but also just maybe a general doctrinal idea of how to come across and, and really talking to your customers and, and looking at the landscape of the competition. So Daniel, I appreciate all of that content, man. No, totally. And I would just throw out two other quick things. And yeah. this is not me, not kind of what we did, but just general pointers or things that I took away from that is sure. I would encourage everybody to look at the data in your business and model your pricing around that. You know, kind of exactly like what we did. We said, 
well, let's look at which customers are most valuable, not even just on, you know, price per month. Because I think if you were looking at our subscriptions and you were just looking at it from a financial lens, you would take the opposite approach. You'd say, maybe we should get rid of the annual plans. We make less per month per customer on our annual plans. We're going to make more revenue per user if we go to the monthly plans, because all they're looking at it from is the financial angle and how much, how much potential revenue they could get per customer. But what I think is really important is, you know, that's, yes, you should look at that. You should think about that, but that's really secondary. And first and foremost, look at really like, which of your customers do you enjoy most? Which of your customers are stickiest over time and are going to be the most valuable over time, which have kind of the right disposition and activity. So that would be one is just look at the data. And then the other one that I throw out just because it's a little bit counterintuitive, but one thing too, so I, I mentioned before, you know, I felt like we were definitely competing on price, just that our prices were significantly cheaper. And I'm talking like a third to 50% as expensive as our competitors with a very similar feature set. Um, So the other thing that we had to get over is, you know, I knew that just strategically, it made sense for us to move to a premium pricing model. What that meant, and I think what it's taken us a bit of time to get comfortable with, is that Uh, you know, we do, uh, anytime someone cancels, we always ask feedback about why they canceled. And one of the things that people always cite is that they're canceling on price. And previously what, you know, and there's always multiple ways to look at the data. Previously, we would look at that and we would say, see, this is why we charge less. This customer left because of price. So what does that mean? We should probably lower our prices more, or maybe we should stay at the same price. But again, what I think that what we needed to do is have faith that, if we build a great product, if we start to build a great brand, if we have the right marketing around it, we have everything going for us to generate a, a sizable business that does premium pricing over time. But what that means is we have to start ignoring and not putting any weight on customers that leave us on price. And we actually should lean into that. And if customers leave us on price, we say, well, great, then they're not our ideal customer. We right. want customers that love what we build and are willing to pay for it. But that's one of those things that I think. It takes time to get your team on board and you have to not interpret the data in the wrong way. You know, you have to be willing to just make that bet. I'm glad you said that, like maybe that customer just isn't, you know, the right one for us, because I know a lot of times entrepreneurs, when it comes to pricing, they get the they get into the habit of chasing. Well, like you said, and have that linear thinking approach to it. Like, well, oh, they left us for the price. Oh, I should just lower the price. And sometimes it's not always that simple. So I appreciate you sharing that. Well, yeah, because you can, you know, lower your price and get the customer. But I think that generally that's not a customer that you want because it's not a customer that's likely to stick. It's not a customer that loves your product and wants to pay for it. So I think, you know, and that's just a general principle that I've learned over time is don't focus on first order outcomes, focus on second and third order outcomes. So don't focus on, oh, well, I can close one, uh, one other customer if I just lower my price. Focus on, well, what customers do I want? What customers are going to help me build the best business over time? And that's going to mean you're going to have to give up some stuff in terms of first order consequences and outcomes to get the second and third order ones that you want. So, Dane, I want to ask you this, because in addition to being the CEO uh, of Flow, you're also an investor and an advisor yourself. So you're probably always looking at uh, the, the landscape of the business world, the entrepreneurial world and stuff like that. And no, and right now, due to COVID, we have a lot of businesses that are doing OK. We have a lot of businesses that are not doing so hot. You know, just today, the Wall Street Journal uh, released an article about uh, the men's warehouse and Joseph A. Bank parent company looking to close more stores and we're hearing uh stories about you know hurts and chuck e cheese and uh, having to close doors and stuff like that so i want to ask you this 
are some of these businesses having issues just due to COVID and it's just coming out of nowhere? Or were there some underlining things before COVID even reared his ugly head? Well, I, th- I yeah. So my answer is probably not going to be super popular, but okay. you know, I think what, a, I think what a lot of people, uh, you know, so all of like, I would say the vast majority of entrepreneurs and investors that I talk to see those stories. And the first thing that comes to mind is, well, those were just bad businesses. And so in a lot of ways, this is like the fire that burns through the forest. And yes, it causes a lot of destruction, but ultimately over time, maybe things get better and it kind of sets the foundation for a new, more modern Chuck E. Cheese to come. And I think, you know, one for better or worse, as entrepreneurs, we're all in the kind of, uh, <laughs> we're all in the evolution and the creative destruction business, whether we'd like to admit it or not. Right. Meaning that in order for us to grow a business, we have to compete and we have to compete and win against some of our other competitors. Right. And, uh, you know, so what I take away from that is, I think a lot of these businesses had not so great underlying economics, meaning that like they were businesses that would do fine in great times, but are going to do really poorly in, in poor times. And I think that, you know, as an investor, um, what, you know, and it really depends. So one thing that I focused on is I invest both in public and private companies. And what I mean by that is, you know, typically the private investments I make are venture capital like or venture capital investments. And so those are in, you're not really worried about profitability. You're not so much focused on the long-term outcome of the business. You're really trying to make a bet on, do I think this thing can have a really interesting growth curve? Do I think that it can compete and win now against some of the other competition? And then over time, you know, you can iterate towards a business model that makes a lot of sense and can make it uh, sustainable and and durable over a really long period of time, but you're not really focused on that. But when you do private investments, or sorry, public investments, and a lot of the public investments I do are in, some of them are bootstrapped, you know, privately held businesses, some of them are in private equity funds, Um, then you're looking at it with a totally different lens. And so, you know, when I look at it from that lens, I definitely see that I think a lot of these businesses had issues. But the bigger thing that I've taken away that I think is not getting talked about enough, Okay. and I think that this is something that's only become really bad, I would say, over the last 50 years. And I would say it's much worse in America than it is in other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could talk about what I've observed there, but is that businesses don't, they are so myopically focused on growth and mm-hmm. what they can do for growth. And they're willing to, you know, so as, a, and as an example, like, yes, Chuck E. Cheese probably had a business that was struggling and, you know, they probably should have been doing more to drive more revenue and just have something that was more durable, you know, and they probably should have been doing that two years ago and five years ago, but, but they weren't. But the other thing that you could say is, well, they were, they probably should have been better capitalized. Like, I'm sorry, but if you're a business, you have to survive and thrive on your revenue. And what's amazing to me is like, I, you know, a lot of the businesses that we were seeing closing or having issues, they literally only had enough in, in cash savings. And obviously as a, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, it's a nightmare scenario Absolutely. when your business goes from generating profitability to now you have to carry all the costs, but you're not making any revenue. Right. That math gets really ugly, really fast. Yes, but what does. I think enough people aren't talking about is why didn't these businesses have bigger cash savings? Why didn't they have something that could get them through three months, six months, nine months, 12 months of really bad outcomes. And what I've observed is, you know, if you look at Japanese companies, which are traditionally more family held. They're traditionally a lot older. A lot of them have been around for 50, 75, 100 plus years. They're very different. They're not so focused on growth. And in in the US, I think what we've seen is companies have just, every time 
they get a dollar in and they think about, should I save this for the future? Should I, should I do this to do some downside risk mitigation? Or should I take this and put this towards growth and advertising 10 times out of 10 or nine, 9.9 times out of 10, they're putting it on growth. And so what I think we're seeing is just businesses have not had a good enough way of thinking about what are the risks we can see and how can we make sure we endure? Because I think it's obviously a really bad outcome when this happens. But if you don't, if you're not able to raise the capital and you don't have the capital, I think that's ultimately on you. I don't think you can blame that on COVID because that's ultimately a lack of planning and foresight. Gotcha. I I appreciate that. You know, you said something interesting that I've been hearing uh, a a few other places as well, because you talked about uh, the Japanese business culture and how there's a lot of those are like family oriented and, and stuff like that. And they've last like 50, 75 years. And, you know, when you think about the, some of the biggest companies here in America, uh, I mean, the only one that kind of stands out that's been around like maybe that long is like a IBM or maybe a Coca-Cola or something like that. A lot of the businesses that we have now, like your, 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 your Amazons and your, uh, and your squares and your Apple to a certain extent, like they're kind of newer companies. Why do you think that there's such a disparity between, you know, how uh, uh, like the Japanese have so many companies that are around so long and not know so, so much here in America, in your opinion? Yeah, I, I mean, in my opinion, I think it's all cultural. Like, gotcha. again, I think so. What I've observed is in the in the UK and in Europe, it's very similar to what what exists in Japan, where there's a lot of very old closely held family businesses. And just as an aside, I love those types of companies and mm-hmm. I nerd out on them. I have a fund that I manage that just invests in what I call, you know, closely family held, owner operated, enduring businesses. Gotcha. Because I think that, you know, those are way under the radar now. And most people don't even know they exist. And a lot of people also, I think, if given the choice, they wouldn't invest in them. But mm-hmm. some of the smartest investors that I look to they have capital invested in those businesses. And just as an example, like personally, I'm way more interested in investing capital in a company like Americo, which operates U-Haul. And I I would be willing to bet, you know, probably all of my net worth that U-Haul is going to be around 25 years from now and Mm -hmm. 50 years from now. I don't think they're going to get innovated out of what they're doing because just they've approached it very differently. They're not focused on growth at all costs. And they're really focused on, we've got a legacy here we've got something really special. We really know what we're good at and what we're not good at. And we're just going to continue to be the best at this game that we're playing. And so just generally, I think, again, it's, and you know, I think it's a little bit of a shame and I would challenge any entrepreneurs, you know, that are listening to this to really just think to themselves for a little while, or maybe, um, you know, do research on some of these closely family held owner operated businesses. Right. Um, you know, as an example, one that one fund that I follow that I really love their approach is uh, you can't invest in it as a US investor, but it's called Edelweiss, Edelweiss Holdings. It's uh, located in Switzerland. It's run by a guy by the name of Tony Deden. And he has just a really different approach. And his whole approach that I love, and I think for any entrepreneur that's generated some wealth, this is going to resonate a lot with them is you know his what he starts from in his fund and their fund is invested almost 100% in these closely family held owner operated businesses where it's likely like the third generation is now managing and leading this company um but his whole thing is he said investors come to me they have something that to them is a priceless asset which is we all know how hard it is to not just make a living but to ultimately build some net worth and it is a you know it's so difficult to be able to do that. And when you've accumulated that, you think about it really differently. And you think about it as, I, I know how much work it took to get this. I want to be 
really responsible and really smart with this because at all, my first priority is not to lose this. My second priority is to grow this over time. And my third priority is to make sure that this ideally endures as long as possible. And there's a bunch of other discussions around that. Like, you know, is it a good thing to give money to the next generation? And you can start going deep into all these rabbit holes. But I, I think that what I love about his model is I totally agree. Like as an entrepreneur, you know how hard it is to build a business and how hard it is to build a little bit of equity and net worth and wealth. And so just this idea of let me not invest in these, you know, moonshot bets that may or may not work. Let me invest in the on. And this is like one thing I'm more excited about than almost anything is unsexy businesses that are just incredibly lucrative. And I think when you look at those closely family held. Yeah, exactly. Like like a U-Haul. Or if you go and you look up Edelweiss Holdings portfolios, it's full of those. And they're really interesting businesses. Gotcha. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because like it's. It's like they're like you said they're not like sexy or whatever case whatever the case may be but you know they're they're stable they you know you know honestly like when I think of moving I don't think of any, the first name that comes to mind is U-Haul when you talked about speaking to that legacy and I think a lot of entrepreneurs need to kind of think about that when they start companies think about that legacy think about not necessarily spending every dollar for growth 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 and stuff like that so I appreciate you sharing that no it's something I'm super passionate about so. I can tell I happy can to tell. chat thank you for, for sharing that I appreciate that once again startup nation we're talking to daniel scrivener the ceo of flow i want to ask you this man because you know uh i was looking on your twitter feed and you re- you retweeted uh uh the video for ford motor company they just re-released the bronco and stuff like that you said it was a great ad so i want to ask you this man because with you know all this technology uh that's very cheap at our whims where we could kind of make you know, kind of not maybe not on the scale of like the Ford Bronco ad, but we can make, you know, uh, 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 inviting videos and, and put it up on social media to kind of invite our target audience and stuff like that. What makes that Bronco ad a great ad, in your opinion? It's a, yeah, great, great question. So what stood out to me and this is something. So, uh, you know, before I was at Square, mm-hmm. I spent three and a half years at Apple and right. I was super lucky, super fortunate. Uh, you know, I attribute most of it to luck that I was able to be there early on. But for me, you know, especially as a designer, you're lucky. That's someplace you aspire to be at some point in your career. And I just happened to have that opportunity kind of early on. And so, you know, the way that I think about that is that was my, you know, with no, just to share it, you know, I dropped out of college to pursue design. I have no college degree. I've been self-taught the entire time. Mm-hmm. And so given that background, I looked at my time as Apple as really the boot camp of what's helped me be What's helped me understand, like, sure, I can maybe do well on a project every once in a while, but how do you, like, what has Apple done right to make it so time after time after time again, launch after launch after launch, they're able to do repeatably excellent work? Because I think, you know, especially as an entrepreneur, like, those two words are what you're after most of the time. You want to have your team do repeatably excellent work. You want to make sure you're delivering for your customers. You want to make sure you're evolving your business and your product and your offering. And ultimately, that comes down to that discipline. And Apple's just nailed that down on the creative side. But one thing that is not talked about that I think is really key to Apple's strategy at doing really great advertising, mm-hmm. and you can learn this really quickly if you go look at uh, I haven't seen them recently. You know, I think these ads were on TV maybe a year and a half, two years ago. But go on YouTube, pull up an iPhone ad, and pull up a Samsung ad from, from say, you know, a year and a half, two years ago. And what you'll quickly find is Apple's whole approach, and they talk about this a ton internally, and it's just the, the way that, that it works, and it's something that's never going to change about how Apple approaches marketing and advertising, okay. is everything begins and ends with the product. Meaning if you're looking at an ad, 
they're not going to try to distract you and tell you some make-believe story. And then at the very end, be like, oh, and if you like this story, you know, and so maybe an example of that would be like for cologne ads. You know, if you go and look at a right, cologne ad, yeah. you're like, what am I even watching? And yeah. then you get to the end of it and they're like, you know, do you like this life or did you find that person sexy? Then go, <laughs> go and buy this cologne. And <laughs> right. I think, you know, that clearly works for, I think, cologne and products where, you're, you're not, you know, you're not competing for a functional need. You're just competing for someone's aspiration and someone right. wants to be this or do this and you're going to help them close the gap, or at least that's what you're marketing them. But you look at what Apple does and everything begins and ends with the product. And I think what that says is a, you're incredibly confident that you've built something great because you don't need to, you know, put lipstick on it. You don't need to dress it up. You don't need to distract from it. You just literally show what it is. And you know that if you do that and you tell a compelling story around that, people are going to love it. But that's something that has to be deeply ingrained because you can't just do that once. That has to be how you think all the time, how you think about advertising, how you think about marketing. In contrast, look at a Samsung ad. They don't, totally don't focus on the product. It's very much like the Cologne ad where you know one of the examples I remember is it was like a football stadium. The ad opens with a football stadium and then you're watching players play on the field. Nothing about a smartphone, nothing about the product. And then at the end, it just goes to like, oh, and, and buy the new Samsung phone. And so what I loved about the Ford Bronco ad is it all it started and ended with the product. It emotionally connected, meaning again, like, and I think this is something that's fascinating and says a lot about human psychology. Look at a Jeep ad, look at a Bronco ad. They're all showing stuff that if you own one, you are likely to do maybe one time per year, which mm -hmm. is take your car, take it four wheeling, you know, go to Moab, go do rock crawling somewhere. Right. I know a lot of people that own Jeeps and, and, you know, cars that are similar to that. Almost none of them do that on a regular basis. And yet you look at the Jeep ad and that's what they market. Why? Because they're trying to market that, hey, are you a person that aspires to be outdoors? Are you an adventurous person? Do you like sports? You know, do you like kind of doing aggressive, fun, exciting, challenging stuff? Then great. Then the way to express that as a car is you go and buy a Jeep. And so just what I loved about the Bronco ad is, you know, it was deeply ingrained in what their customers love, which people want a rugged car. They want to be outdoors. They want to go camping. They, you know, want to go out in the wilderness. And then, you know, kind of using that as a story to then reveal the new Bronco. And what I also liked about it is I just, for me, it's another example of it's Ford, you know, a company that's been around for a really long time Absolutely. that's making a, making a big, bold bet on a resurgence of a product that they've had to do really differently. And, you know, I love that. I get excited about that. I hear that. I hear that. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for kind of pulling the curtain back a little bit uh, when it comes to how Apple does uh, their marketing. I think that's fascinating. I'm going to ask you this as well. We're going to start uh, wrapping up here, Startup Nation with Daniel uh, Scrivener, CEO of Flow. I want to ask you this, man, because you've worked at both Apple and you've both worked at Square. And I'm a huge fan of, of, of Jobs and, and Dorsey. What's, what's, what's something about both of those people that they you know that that you know that, why they just get it right how come they're successful or were successful in steve jobs case you know what is it about them that just like you know that just breeds success and in, in, in both apple and uh square yeah i mean i but one of my biggest takeaways and i've seen this as a commonality amongst really i think anyone that's built something something remarkable that from the outside looking in, you're like, I don't know how they've done this, but there's something really special here. Right. And when you ultimately get to talk to that team or you get to meet the entrepreneur, the thing that I've never met somebody that runs a company or is involved in a company like that, that doesn't possess this is it's just, they're absolutely uncompromising. Like, you know, when I worked at Apple, I was lucky enough to be there when Steve jobs was still around right. and I got to see him on campus with Johnny Ive and 
be a part of all hands meetings where he would talk. But the other thing that isn't talked about is, you know, uh, I worked on the marketing side. So we would ship a new marketing website for a new product. And very frequently, Steve would go and look at it when it was released. He would send back notes on stuff that was incorrect or needed to be corrected or, Mm -hmm. hey, why is this missed here? Or, or, hey, this is supposed to be this way. Why isn't it this way? And literally that would just get forwarded down. And so you as, you know, an employee, quite a few rungs down the totem pole would get an email forwarded from Steve Jobs that showed that he was going to look at everything and anything that wasn't at up to the right standard was going to get called out. And, you know, I'm a big fan of just, you know, coaches uh, of, of different sports teams that are able to do this as well. And, you know, for people that like football, like this is what Belichick is better at than Mm, probably anybody else is he is able, you know, and I think that's something that I've spent a lot of time focused on because I think even if it doesn't seem like it, it applies a lot to entrepreneurship of how do you, as a coach, I think one of the challenges is you've got new people coming in and, you know, you have people leaving the organization, you have new people coming in and your job is to create a machine that whether all your team is left and turned over in a season or, you know, two of your star players have left, but everyone else has remained year after year after year, you can have a winning team. And the only way you do that is you have an uncompromising culture. Everybody holds everybody to that standard. And as a team, you all suffer through that, you know, together and you embrace that it's really difficult to do, but it's really rewarding when you get it right. And I think that's another one of those things that it's so hard to like kickstart that in a culture. It's a really painful process to get that moving. Cause I think again, part of being uncompromising, it's not fun to sit with because it ultimately means that most of the time you're unhappy or you at least are focused on the gulf between here's what it could be and here's what it is now. And how do I close that gap? And so what, you know, the way I've seen that process work is if you're an executive and you want to see that happen in your team, you need to start doing that all the time. Nothing is exempted from it. You know, if you have a receptionist that answers calls a certain way and you think it could be better, the receptionist and the way you handle incoming calls gets as much attention as the people that are on the front lines building your product. Gotcha. And, you know, a great book for this is The Score Takes Care of Itself by uh, um, blanking on the name of the author. Gotcha. But the whole idea behind it is if you're just uncompromising across the board, and this is kind of like reading between the lines and my takeaway, but if you're just uncompromising across the board and you build that as a culture, you will inevitably achieve greatness because most businesses don't have that. It's incredibly difficult to do. It takes a lot of time being uncomfortable until you learn how to like have a thriving culture with that. But when you nail it down, it makes you unstoppable in a lot of ways. I hear that. Thank you for sharing all of that for sure. I, I think the word that sticks out is uncompromising. Uh, and, I, and I think a lot of us uh, startup nation can definitely learn from that because a lot of times we're, you know, we, we, we like to acquiesce like, nah, I want to ruffle feathers and stuff like that. And, and, uh, and to your point, I, I imagine not only were they uncompromising, they did it in a way that was tactful, respectful, re- professional and all of the above. So I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, and that. Yeah. And just the only thing I would add to that is I would also say that like when you're uncompromising, it's going to be most challenging for you to do that as the CEO or as the owner of the business. And the reason sense. is, It's, you know, I feel so many owners just will constantly trade off and they're like, well, I would like to achieve this, but if I could get this and it's a few rungs down from where I'd like to be, but I can save a few bucks and I can save a few weeks. Most entrepreneurs fall into that trap. And I think, again, what ends up happening is they're focusing on these first order consequences and outcomes as opposed to the bigger ones. 
Meaning that if you're just willing to forgo that, and if you're willing to say, no, we're not going to compromise. I said, we're going to get here. We're going to get here. If you're willing to do that, you have a chance to build something great. But if you're just always going to trade off and you're always going to acquiesce, understand that like it is going to be hardest on you as the executive to build that and flex that muscle and not give in to your team. Because again, like one of the most difficult things as an entrepreneur is everything you do gets interpreted by your team. And they're learning from your actions and from what you say and from what you do and, and trying to model that and trying to see, well, what are we really biasing for and what should I try to do? And so just understand that like, what, that's not going to be something you enforce on your team. That's something that starts with you and then it trickles down and it's going to be hardest on you to get right. Got you. Got you. Thank you for sharing all of that for sure. And once again, Startup Nation, we're wrapping up uh, with Daniel Scrivener, uh, the CEO of flow and once again if you want to check out flow we have the link there in the show notes for easy access if you listen to the replay on a podcast but if you're listening on radio it's www.getflow.com forward slash startup life promo code startup life all caps like i said we have all that in the show notes for easy access to get 25 percent off of a monthly and annual uh, uh, you know, program and, and Daniel also uh, said that you know the first 30 days are uh, risk free. So I appreciate you sharing that again as well, Daniel, for sure. No, thank you so much for having me on. It's been amazing to chat with you. No worries, man. Look, I'm actually gonna turn the microphone over to you for this last question, man. Because look, you know, as we engage through this new economy, this COVID, this coronavirus, and stuff like that, there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there feeling a little discouraged, man. Give us some words of encouragement to take us out for the day, if you don't mind, sir. Ooh. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a that's a hard that's a hard one. That's a tough that's a tough bill at these times. Gotcha. Yeah, I think I, I mean the way. So I, I'll just share what I've been focused on and how I'm trying to get through it. And I think the thing I would just say at the start is, um, I know that a lot of entrepreneurs are going through incredibly challenging times, and that could be everything from you've worked to build this company, you know, clawing, grinding trying to build this thing for 10 years and you might be on the precipice of losing that business. And that is gut-wrenching, you know, and this might also be for you just, this could have felt like it came at the worst time and you were just ready to kind of launch this new part of your product, or you were just ready to start this next evolution of the company. And then here comes this kind of, you know, hook, hook punch that just, that just got you. Um, and so, you know, the, the way that I've been able to manage my way through it is, um, just by, focusing on doing the right things day in and day out, making sure that, and I think this is also something that I got wrong, I would say two months ago, I think I was a little overly harsh uh, with my team. Mm. And I think one thing that I've really learned is I think, you know, you as an entrepreneur are going through a lot of stress right now. Understand that everybody on your team is going through something that feels very similar. They're concerned about their jobs they're they're con they're concerned about what's going on in their lives. They're concerned about their significant other. They're concerned about their their family or their friends or their kids. So everybody has something right now. And so one thing I would say is I think now more than ever, the love you give your team, the support you give them, choosing to be um, choosing to you know have a positive message when you maybe miss a milestone or miss a beat and say it's you know focusing more on effort as opposed to results and rewarding effort. Uh, more than anything right now on your team. And it just, you know, I think just making sure that um, using this as an opportunity when everyone's going through something really challenging to just make sure that people feel really positively about coming to work every single day, about getting to work with you, 
and that this isn't just something they're doing in the interim to pay their bills, but this is something they're doing because they believe in you. They believe in what you're building and they believe in the way you run the company and the way you treat people. And I think that's, you know, not something we're discussing enough. And so I would just focus on, you know, focus on taking care of yourself, make sure that you're not giving all of your energy and effort to work. And so for me, it's been a big period of as counter, uh, you know, cyclical as it is, like I've really tried to focus on sleep. I've really tried to focus on nutrition, on exercise any day, because I generally find that when it feels like you can't make time for all of that stuff is when you need it the most. And I think if you need to show up as your best self every single day, you need to make sure you're taking care of yourself. And then just make sure that you understand that everyone on your team is going through something really challenging. Give them love, give them support. Use this as a period of time to really win their hearts so that they're in it with you for the long haul. I hear that. Awesome stuff. And that's going to wrap up this session of the Startup Life. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the show. And as always, Startup Life, Startup Nation, if you have an idea, be about that life, the Startup Life. If you want to let us know what you think about our show, have an idea for a show topic, or would like to advertise on our show, send us a message on the Startup Life Podcast Facebook page. And while you are there, like and follow our page as well. It's a great way for us to engage with you, Startup Nation, and really grow our community. The link is there in the show notes. Subscribe to the show as it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, or even on your Facebook timeline or any other platform you like to get your podcast. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts and you find our content valuable, please give us a five-star rating as it will help us climb the charts and help more people find our show. You can also listen to the show on the Startup Life Podcast new website. There you will find the all-new startup blog where I write on many topics that are interesting and helpful to you on your path to entrepreneurship. And hey, If you have an idea, be about that life, the startup life.